You are now listening to The Big Data Beard. Hey everybody, this is Corey Minton from The Big Data Beard Podcast, and we are at Data Science Salon in Austin, Texas, at Dell's headquarters, and actually Round Rock, Texas, more appropriately. And we are actually joined by the director of AI for Dell, David Patchkey. David, how are you doing today? Uh, great, Corey. Brett, must yeah. be pretty nice to be at a conference at your office. That's pretty convenient. Yeah, it definitely makes uh, it a little bit light on travel. So Helps uh, with the emails and all of that as well. Yeah, yeah, I was doing a little bit of that before this. <laughs> that happens. So, David, tell us a little bit about what you do for Dell. Okay. Yeah. So actually, I am a, a director for uh, AI and machine learning strategy, uh, specifically targeted around precision workstations. So uh, looking at um, how we can make uh, our workstation offerings uh, an ideal offering for helping execute AI and machine learning workflows. So uh, I think there is uh, a lot of uh, movement around being able to execute these workflows in the in the cloud, mm -hmm. uh, but I still, I mean, kind of me as an as an old school person, and I think most data scientists as a whole still like having that data locally and working with it locally. And uh, but there's a lot of tooling, there's a lot of software and ecosystem around that. Mm -hmm. And so, what can Dell provide? You know, on top of its world class hardware, who do, who can we partner with from a an a software uh, ecosystem perspective in order to help accelerate? Uh, you know, productivity around AI and machine learning projects. Nice. Well, when you talk to data scientists, I think most of us, you know, when we have started tinkering with machine learning and, and some of the modern kind of AI technologies, I think pretty much all of us start with our like laptop or our desktop. And then we run into some challenge. Like, how important is it when you talk to data scientists, how important is it to really have just an awesome machine for really getting those workloads kicked off? So the way that uh, the way that I typically phrase this is uh, as a data scientist, and, and my background was actually doing uh, doing data science for probably about the last decade um, before moving into more of the strategy role. And uh, the way that I always phrase this is as a data scientist, I'm always used to working around constraints. Mm -hmm. I always seem to hit, uh, you know, run up against memory bottlenecks, uh, processing bottlenecks, whatever. And so uh, I'm used to working around constraints. And the more of a machine that you give me, uh, the happier I'm going to be and the fewer constraints I'm going to have to uh, work around. So that means more time actually working and solving the problem at hand. So it, whenever it comes down to, oh, should I spend a little bit of extra money here or there? Uh, I've always found that, yeah, that extra grand or two on a little bit faster processor with a few more cores uh, or that little bit higher in graphic card ends up, ends up making a difference. Yeah, so when you're talking constraints, and obviously uh, computational power is a big thing for AI and machine learning, uh, accelerators, right? They're all the rage now, GPUs, uh, FPGAs, all these different types of accelerators. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the importance of them? And do you always need to have an accelerator for your model development? Yeah, uh, no, I think that's a, that's a good Good question, Brett. I mean, I, I think right now people are familiar with accelerators and particularly around the, the deep learning revolution. Uh, something that I was, was mentioned, uh, late last year and has, uh, there's, there's been a pretty big push for is, uh, you know, NVIDIA has started to release their, their rapids, uh, uh, platform and the rapids is for executing, you know, machine learning work workloads on there as well, too. So, uh, any, anything from like data, you know, the kind of that, that first step, uh, first mile of, of data ingestion, uh, aggregation 
And then also from a machine learning perspective as well, too, they've done some, some stuff underneath the, the hood to accelerate XGBoost, which is a, you know, gradient boosting al- algorithm. That's kind of the, the popular go to algorithm on, on Kaggle competitions. And so, uh, so what was once just, uh, Hey, let's use accelerators for deep learning, I think is starting to, to morph into, to that. Uh, one of the huge limitations around accelerators is always uh, available GPU memory, uh, because you, want as much of your data to be residing in memory as possible because the transfer back and forth of data from the uh, you know from the the from the main system to the GPU uh, can be a little bit of a constraint but uh, but uh, with the with the next round of, of Nvidia's cards they're coming out with with larger GPU footprints and so that is uh, that that's making that could kind of change the game in terms of of moving from deep learning as well now to kind of doing the whole stack of machine learning and, and again, accelerating data, data aggregation and that first mile process as well too. Cool. I want to dive in a little bit more into this idea of like memory constraint with GPUs. Can you give an example of, I think of like high resolution pictures where you get to a certain size where you actually can't put it into the GPU. Is that kind of what you're talking about as a constraint or give us an example? Yeah. So I think when I'm thinking about constraints is more from a kind of relational data uh, standpoint, right? So if I'm wanting to do uh, joining data from, from multiple diff- different data sources and come in, right, that there's going to be, you know, memory overhead on that. Uh, there's also going to be memory overhead on doing, you know, feature engineering as, as well too on, on some of those columns. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, it could hit, hit several different aspects of, you know, a lot of times if you are using some of the consumer graphics cards that have a lower GPU memory footprint, uh, sometimes if you're doing some of the high quality video stuff, you can do a batch size of one. And uh, that might not necessarily help your models converge to that um, right the kind of the, the the optimal point. And so that's yeah, so around uh, right again, constraints, more GPU memory, the better, more CPU memory or, or, or regular memory, the better. Uh, yeah. So it's interesting because one of the, one of the things that we've seen is constraints in general across, you know, IT for years was like any IT workload could be AI, it could be anything else was, was storage, right? And the ability for a storage subsystem or storage in a desktop or in a laptop or in a server to be able to serve the needs of a uh, you know, processor quickly enough, which is why you needed large main memory buffers to handle that kind of dealing with that problem. But there's been a lot of evolution in storage over the last few years and the speed at which you know, storage is providing data access and data throughput around things like flash and others. Are there, are there storage technologies that you think are uniquely interesting in AI and machine learning in the context of like desktop computing? Yeah. From, from a workstation perspective, uh, that, yeah, it's interesting. I think the whole NVMe, uh, aspect of storage was something I, re- I remember, gosh, I guess now it's been maybe two years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I way overpaid on, uh, some NVMe storage because I, you know, read about that and said, Hey, this, this actually could end up making a difference. And, and it does, uh, you know, the problem is at that time it was so expensive. So I think I only got like a uh, 512 gigs and then was able to, um, you know, so, so my data set was somewhat limited. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I, I remember noticing a difference at that time of being able to swap, uh, data from, you know, memory to, or sorry, from, from disk to, to memory mm-hmm. and, uh, and get a speed up. So, yep, that's for yeah, sure. The other one I'm looking at is, uh, like storage class memory. I think it's going to be kind of interesting. Okay. As it makes its way into the world, that's going to be one that's still a few years out in terms of really 
broad adoption. Mm-hmm. But as a as a data scientist who actually practiced in the in, in the industry, and then now from a strategy perspective, you talked early on how it's like you know people start in the data center and or they start in the in the workstation, right? And they begin you know toying around, playing, learning. But when they move towards actually developing something useful, typically a lot of those workloads need to be picked up and run in a data center in a in a cloud somewhere. Are there specific technologies that you're seeing that like make that easier like around orchestration and management of machine learning and AI workloads that that you think help make the bridge the gap between that data scientist that's working on this workstation and wants to scale that out eventually? Yeah. No, I, I think there are some pretty interesting technologies that are starting to come around that. I mean, of course, you have the whole revolution of what, Kubernetes and then Google's uh, kind of all in on Kubeflow, which is the machine learning and, and kind of distributed uh, framework to be able to, to scale out. Uh, I, I, I still think that uh, while that's maturing rapidly, um, there's still a place in, in the market for... Uh, kind of capturing that, uh, you know, from, from an enterprise perspective. Mm-hmm. So, uh, at least from, from what I've seen, uh, right, Kubeflow is, is very, um, geared towards kind of Google and Google Cloud platform and, and their platform. Um, uh, and what I, uh, you know, what, what I, what I am interested in is kind of who's going to be that enterprise leader in potentially Kubeflow. I mean, when you think of, okay, what did, you know, Cloudera and Hortonworks do for Hadoop? Mm -hmm. Uh, Is there someone that can be that leader in that space uh, around a Kubeflow or right? Or this, this just, Distributed machine learning offering, and uh, I think I think it's interesting to see what can happen. So, but obviously, you know, container technologies uh, I I think are, are great. Uh, going back to kind of circling back around Rapids, mm-hmm. um, I know that Rapids is heavily using a uh, Python uh, parallel processing tool called Dask, and that there's there's a lot of promise in in that as well too. So. Uh, when you're talking about, hey, I, I can use Dask and I, I can I can wrap my code using Dask and I can run it on the workstation, or then I can you know put it into a data center and then distribute it, uh, you know, and and run run it using Dask around what I have available in the data center. It makes the data scientist's job a heck of a lot easier. It's just a matter of configure config ah, configuring what you have available on the back end in order to be able to execute. Yeah. So you, you hit on that. So data scientist jobs are pretty hard today still, right? It's still not an easy job that's there. So I'm, I'm curious, what do you think as you look across the, the landscape of tools and technologies that a data scientist has to use to execute their task, right? Of, of finding good data sources that can help them find predictive outcomes that drive some business value. What do you think are the next innovations that have to happen in this AI ecosystem mm-hmm. that's really going to just accelerate adoption of AI in the enterprise and really move us forward rapidly? Yeah, no, that that's a good question. And and actually, the answer to that is something that I'm pretty passionate about oh, because uh, because I, I mean I don't want to say like this, but the kind of the the sexy part of machine learning and AI, mm-hmm. there, there are a lot of eyes on that, and I don't want to say it's solved, yeah. but at least from a business use case perspective, uh, it's like if you're if you're not doing any of of this right now then the algorithms out there to at least get your feet wet mm-hmm. they're there and they're good enough 
Um, the question is, right, your first mile of data ingestion and your last mile of data deployment, right? So one of the things that I like to say around the first mile when you're thinking about, okay, what is, what is the first mile or what does data ingestion mean? I've kind of come up with an acronym called kind of, kind of like making data come alive, right? And alive stands for uh, aggregation. Uh, so how are you going to join different sources? L is lineage, right? Because you want to be able to track any changes that, that you make to that. Um, uh, I is ingestion. How are you going to get that into uh, your system in order to be able to, to actually work with it? V is validation because there's tons of errors in data. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, E is enhancement or engineering, right? How are you going to create additional features to, again, make, make data come alive to them to, that you're going to put into your models? And then lastly, on the tail end, if you are not able to deploy those models, you're just basically taking part in a research project. So the idea is, what do we have to do in order to be able to make it as simple as possible? Because at the end of the day, all those are like, they're, they're all buzzwords, right? Oh, yeah. AI, machine learning, data science. When you, when, you, when you break it down into what each one of those disciplines produce, they produce a model. And that model has to be consumed by the business or by an end user in order for it to, to be useful and transformative. So how, what, is, what is it going to take to, to be able to do that? So when you're talking about ecosystem plays, my question is, okay, what tools are, gonna, are, are going to be out there that are going to make it really easy for data to come alive? Mm -hmm. And then what tools are going to be out there to make it almost seamlessly available to deploy those models in order for, for it to transform businesses. So I think that's still, right, there's, there's a lot of people, you know, the, the, the fascination of, of the mathematics and, and, and just the ability to kind of create these models is what attracts and, and what mystifies. But man, there's almost a lot more, you know, mystification on, on the front end and the, la on the, on the first mile and the last mile than there is in the middle. And I think more attention paid to that is going to be, is, is going to be really the key to, to, um, to making this become more mainstream. I really like that. That yeah, make data come alive. That, that is perfect. <laughs> yeah, that acronym is good. And actually, you hit on something, which is we, we've talked about it a bunch on this show, is that there's, as you said, there's two ends of that spectrum. The ingestion side where even still today, the majority of analysts say that data scientists spend 80% of their time getting, cleaning, and getting data ready. Algo development is very small part of it. And then the flip side of that is, is like, once you have an algo, put it in the ops. So there's this kind of like ML ops kind of hashtag going around on Google. Yeah. There's a couple of companies that are startups in that space where mm -hmm. I agree that if they can help innovate there, I think it's going to be hugely useful. Yeah, I think the focus has been really on that model development part of the last couple yeah, of years. And not on the wrangling or the putting into production. <laughs> it's cool, right? Or it's, it's, the, it's, it's the second. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which I don't know why. It's, the, I it's think still data, just data. I think data wrangling is really sexy. Yeah, there so. you go. <laughs> <laughs> Said yeah. no one ever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, so I'm curious with, with Dell, going back to Dell, and Dell's been around for a long time. And they, they've done a lot. Uh, Dell getting into the AI game is, is not a new thing, but it's become, it's still relatively new. Can you talk a little bit about what Dell's overall strategy is with artificial intelligence? So uh, I'm mainly focused on, on workstations, but that doesn't mean that I don't have a, a broader picture as well, too, or that workstations are just an entity unto themselves. Like, right. really, I think where, where Dell stands apart is like we really are truly an end-to-end -end provider. And when you think of 
right? Data being stored in a data center. <laughs> so we have the data storage aspects of things, uh, of, of the equation. Uh, if you're wanting to scale out on big data, right? We've got the servers in the data center to be able to do that. If you're looking at, at data scientists being able to Kind of stratify their data and do you know build some smart early models uh, we have workstations that have the horsepower to be able to do that and then all the way down to you know edge or IOT devices if those need to be we need to be uh, you know we need to pull companies need to deploy models uh, to the edge right we we have that in that entire landscape so the the question then is like from an ecosystem perspective where do kind of where do we need to tackle what, what do we need to focus on on that and I think we you know we touched upon uh, that a little bit earlier with containers mm-hmm. uh, that the ability to uh, right encapsulate all your dependencies within that uh, that container unit uh, being able to, to work on that workstation but then you know farm it out out to a larger data center for with more compute resources uh, to build a model that then okay encapsulate that model within a container to be able to ship to edge devices mm-hmm. that uh, there is that that whole container ecosystem is something that is really going to uh, it's it's really going to help help Dell help customers mm-hmm. in terms of being able to execute in these the AI and machine learning projects. Um, I want to go back actually to there was there was a question on the the ecosystem mm-hmm. and and so we we talked about some of those technical pieces. I think one thing that's lost as well too in in that um, is really defining a good problem that is going to transform the business. I think there's a lot of times that uh, you know what what I've seen and been my experience is. Um, you know, you might tackle a problem because it's easy to solve or you think that it's there. But if you don't, if you aren't involving the business owner or you aren't involving that, that, that product owner there that helping clearly define what is going to be useful to salespeople or to uh, support technicians or to, uh, you know, to, to forecasters. Hey, if, if you're not, not supplying the right information mm-hmm. and not starting with the right problem, like it really starts with the problem. So, so forget about the eco. I mean, not, don't forget about the ecosystem, but like, let's get a good problem first and then move to that find the use case and then back yourself into what you know what where in the ecosystem is going to help build out that use case what's the data source what's the software is that kind of what you're talking about absolutely yeah and it's funny because i think the you said it too that so much of the tech is figured out right i mean there's (laughs) there's models out there there's there's model automation tools out there that help if you have good data right that that can help you find the models there's a lot of work to be done in the data digestion world, but I think you have it. You nailed it when you say that the business use case is the starting point. Absolutely. And without that, yeah, absolutely. Because the flip side, and one of the times, data scientists and, and people in the technology part, we part of it, we get excited because we're like, "Oh, it's tech." <laughs> but if we there's two problems. One, if we don't have a use case, then it's hard to it's hard to justify. And then if we've got tech and we didn't justify, then it's hard <laughs> to stick around very long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. So solve the right problem. Solve the right problem that's going to transform the business, and that is, and and that absolutely 100% includes the business owners. So the, the data scientists are, are not going to magically come up with it uh, unless they they are solving the right problem. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so prior to Dell, you did some work in the data science field. You were a data <laughs> scientist. You mentioned Kaggle earlier. Have you done anything with any data sets from there? Or can you tell any stories about when you were a data scientist? <laughs> yeah, you from know, the good old so, days. Yeah, so um, so thinking back, like I, I first started off in the uh, the financial world. Uh, yeah, doing some some algorithmic trading models. Uh, did that for a while, then moved to a uh, education startup uh, in Austin. 
was a was a data scientist there, kind of helping build out their their machine learning pipeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I ca- then I came to Dell, and actually it was uh, you know a good good friend of mine, uh, you know, brought me into Dell, and and he's you know a Kaggle master, and so I never really participated too much in Kaggle, but I did uh, you know kind of peanut gallery uh, efforts in in some of the. Uh, some of the tasks that that he did um, for me, it was it, yeah, it, it definitely becomes incredibly time consuming on top of a full time yeah. uh, a data job as well too. So those comp- <laughs> respect that. Well, those and family, are unreal, right? Yeah, they're unreal. <laughs> so I got so I got to ask you about one the one piece of work that you had that I read in your bio, the AES power routines. Oh, yeah. So tell yeah. me about this. Tell me how this came about because it's <laughs> clearly it's a numbers guy, a data science guy, <laughs> but it's something else. What is this related to? Yeah. So uh, so I have a background in volleyball. Uh, so I went to the University of Texas and I was a student assistant uh, for the women's team uh, while I was an undergraduate there and uh, got really, really uh, like fantastic training from a coach perspective from from the head coach was uh, that was there at the time and uh, I thought that that's what I actually wanted to do for a living I was like I'm going to you know be the vagabond volleyball coach and so uh, so I, I again very very heavily involved with USA volleyball decided I didn't want to travel uh, as much so okay I'm gonna stay in Austin uh, I'll be a teacher and a volleyball coach. So I was a high school math teacher and a varsity volleyball coach for one year when I realized, eh, not so much my, my gig. Uh, so went back to school, um, finished up my computer science degree, started it on some graduate school, and uh, then you know went to, um, uh, got a job at IBM. But during all that time, I still kept coaching uh, club volleyball. So uh, Austin Junior Volleyball and and... Uh, so the uh, right, the owner of that is also runs one of the largest tournaments and is is very heavily involved with with USA Junior Volleyball, okay. and so he knew I was a data guy and mm-hmm. reached out to me and said, "Hey, David, could what about creating a ranking system like where we can assign points to certain strengths of tournaments and, and like." I was like, no, no, no. If I'm getting involved with this, I want to do it right. <laughs> and so I said, the only way that you can get true uh, rankings is by head-to-head competition, scores on those competitions, and then any uh, additional data points that we can get around matches that are played. Well, junior club volleyball, you're, you pretty much are doing good with scores. Like, if I can get good quality scores and head-to-head, like I, I can solve it. So, uh, I guess probably it's going on now six years. Uh, I started building it out in AWS so I could scale it across multiple age groups. Uh, I think the first year, uh, there were about 10,000 teams, maybe about, wow. uh, 100,000 matches. Uh, this last year across multiple age groups, uh, male and female or, or girls and boys, uh, there were over 30,000 teams and over a million matches that I'm, I'm using to, to score it. And, uh, and wow. I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't read the message boards. <laughs> I, I know I, I get, I get some email every now and then about how this isn't uh, how we were ranked incorrectly or yeah. this isn't, you know, this isn't right. Um, but it's always interesting that whenever I've d- dove into some of those like one offs, mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh, great. So, yeah. So you beat the team that was ranked 
five spaces ahead of you, but you failed to share with me that you lost to the team 20 spaces below you. <laughs> right. So yeah, no, you shouldn't be above that one team you beat because you didn't pr you know, prove consistency. So a lot of the mathematical principles, early ranking algorithms, um, you know, the chess ranking algorithms, um, page rank from from Google use a derivative of that um, there's a you know the the boosting algorithm lambda mart is is where I ensemble all of those together um, so yeah I mean the, I use uh, I, I use an ensemble of, of different ranking algorithms and come up with something and uh, I, and it's dynamic too so what I try to do for tournament directors is you have a subset of teams that are going to be playing in your division. And so maybe you only want to use those, the matches from those teams rather than, right, the global, right. um, to be able to get some specific matchups correctly. So yeah, I, yeah, it's, it's been a labor of love for mine, thankfully, uh, with as busy as I've been lately. Um, it's kind of on autopilot mode. Um, but it's always something in the back of my mind that I'm thinking about how I could do a better job with in, that. Until like one team changes the date format and completely <laughs> makes you have to redo oh, the no. data wrangling. Oh, no, no, no. I have, <laughs> I have so much, I have so much data quality checks in there. It is like, yeah, it's taken years for me to get to where it for is. For a million records, you would have to. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> and it, no, I mean, surprisingly, it runs on AWS every Tuesday morning, starts at midnight finishes by 4 a.m. And it's been doing that week in, week out for about the last five years. That's really that's cool. Awesome, man. <laughs> well, that's awesome to hear, one, that, uh, you know, that you're actually employed full-time in a role that you get to talk about AI and big data, helping data scientists solve unique problems, yeah. specifically using Dell's, you know, workstation technology to bring that, you know, that power to right there in their desk, in their cube. Yeah. That's very cool. And it's even more fun. I love hearing the use cases and that you've, you've been tinkering for a lot of years <laughs> on something that you're passionate about. That's really fun. But I want to shift gears. Okay. We've had fun talking with you about technology and about volleyball. Yeah. Uh, but now we want to get a little bit personal with a section we call rapid fire. We've learned a lot from our guests about big data, but now it's time to get a bit personal in a segment we like to call rapid fire. Pew, pew. All right. So what's the latest book that you've read that you want to share with our listeners? Oh, so I can't say that I've read a book cover to cover, uh, but maybe I'll take two. I'll do the one that I've read cover to cover and then the other one. Uh, AI Superpowers by Kai-Fu Lee. Uh, really good book. Uh, doesn't get into the algorithm aspects of things, but really presents it. So like, if you're a data scientist and you're trying to convince your boss or your leader about where AI is going, mm -hmm. uh, that's a great book to give to them. Interesting. There was, there's another one that I just got, which I was really excited about. I'm not a, a backend data guy, but there's, uh, I was like building data driven applications or something like that. Uh, I, do you, are you familiar I've with seen that? seen it all. Man, it, like I read the first like chapter or two and I was blown away. Like, okay, I'm not a data scientist. I'm not a, so I'm, yeah, I am a data scientist, but I'm not a backend data guy. Mm -hmm. But man, if I ever wanted to get up with, to speed on how to create a data driven application, it was a really good book. All right. Good. Great. Like it. Great. So if you had to have a song to play when you walk on stage, what song would that be? Your, your theme <laughs> yeah. song for going yeah. on stage. Or if you're, if you're walking on for a volleyball game yeah. and you want a song <laughs> playing for you. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> that's a good one. 
I don't know if I can. Can I give you a genre though? Yeah, it's fine. Okay. Yeah. So I grew up in the eighties. I'm a big eighties hairband guy. There you go. So I'd probably have to dive a little bit into one of the, you know, the sunset strip, uh, LA okay. hair bands and, uh, and pull out one of the classics there. Good so choice. I think that is the toughest rapid fire question. It is. It really is. The it's all downhill. Yeah. All downhill from here. Wow. Here you go. Um, yeah, there we go. So what piece of technology is making your life worse? Uh, outlook. <laughs> <laughs> Amen, brother. It is a burning trash fire. Yep. Yeah, oh. no, I I am so much like I'm trying to transition people to channel based uh, uh mm-hmm. messaging, mm-hmm. right? And uh, man, if I, if only we could do that, then I'm not. So I say like I play uh uh um flight uh. Oh, flight yeah. Sims? Well, no, 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 not oh. not flight sims. I'm the, uh, the the flight coordinator, right? The person yeah. who's a flight controller, right? <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm just sitting here directing emails here and there and batting my bid in. And I'm like, no, we could all do this in a channel. And it's yeah, air traffic controller. That's yeah, what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. I just I'm air traffic. I'm mail traffic controller. It's yeah, yeah. it's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So moving on. What's your biggest personal money pit right now? Oh. Man, uh, I I don't really have too much of a money pit. I would say my that's a good thing to have. My my personal money pit. Uh, if I if I <laughs> I say my uh my wife loves redecorating, yeah. so perhaps that's I would right. probably that does end up being our money. So that would be yeah no. And she's she's an absolutely fantastic interior design person yeah. and. Yes, we'll we'll definitely take care of how the inside of our house looks. Plus three points for that, though. You got yeah, it there. Yeah, you, you handled that one because you threw her down there and then you <laughs> brought her back up. Right there back you up go. and then put her on a pedestal. Yeah. That was brilliant. Well done. So what? So what show are you binging on right now? I don't watch much TV, honestly. That's all right. I would no, say, yeah, true. I would say, you know, the last one that we, that uh, my wife and I binged on was we were very late into the game on Game of Thrones. Yeah. And so uh, we actually didn't. So th- this will be the first season in April that we have seen as it has gone week to week. Oh, okay. so we caught the end of last season, binged watch that over uh, Christmas. Uh, I want to say, yeah, it was a year or it was. I, I can't remember when it was. We we binged watched the heck out of that. Yeah. That was yeah. It's, it's a great a, series yeah. to binge watch. <laughs> it's a lot of time, but it's a great yeah. series. Yeah. And then lastly, where's the next interesting place that you're going to? Well, I wouldn't say in. I wouldn't say interesting. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm heading out to uh, San Francisco area. I mean, maybe that's interesting. Uh, but I will say that the last interesting place that I just came back from was a Holy Land trip into Israel. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So I uh, went over there with uh, with my church and uh, spent a spent a week over there, and um, man, fantastic! Like I, it's it's a whole other perspective, you mm-hmm. know, when when just going over there and and hearing from tour guides, you know, who uh, can trace their their lineage back for millennium, really. Yeah. So yeah. that's insane. That's very cool. Well, David, it was super fun to talk with you today. Thanks for joining the Big Data Beard podcast here at the Data Science Salon in Austin. Oh, no. Thank you very much for having me on here. I appreciate uh, talking with you guys. Cool, bud. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Big Data Beard podcast. The music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. Check him out on iTunes or Spotify. 
It would also be pretty cool if you reviewed us in your favorite podcast app. It really does help. Thanks for listening.